for whatever reason or multiple reasons, I've just been feeling the weight the past few days. And last night, reviewing my notes, looking over this text and trying to think, well, Lord, what is there, is there hope for us too? Because sometimes things just seem so dark. And in the midst of the darkness in Exodus, the text we see, it would be easy to lose sight of the hope that we have in Christ, the deliverance that has been accomplished. And I think in some ways I was just feeling where the people of the text were. Because as we're about to read, Israelites weren't exactly responding positively to everything that was going on. But even still, the importance of being reminded of the truth has become so real to me from the few conversations I've had before services this morning to the Sunday school lesson and the gospel project, which was just phenomenal. A reminder from Psalm 23 of the Lord who leads. And then the many songs that we've just sang about God, who is our fortress, who is our foundation, who is the one who is only the only one who is worthy. I hope that that is the things that we remember as we look at the text this morning, as we consider the truth that God has made a promise, a promise to deliver, and God has delivered. Because as we look at the text in Exodus, we're having to do it from a, a sort of different perspective than the original readers would have done. But it's a glorious perspective in that if we've got the Exodus over here and the Israelites have got all these promises, they're yet to see the deliverance in the Exodus that we're going to look at in the weeks to come. But then we... After the Exodus, we know the promise of Christ who has come and accomplishes not just the Israelites' redemption through the Exodus and God's provision there, but then Christ who accomplishes redemption here. But then we stand on this side, and we get to look back. So we look at the text. We want to put ourselves in their situation, but we also want to say, how does this apply to me? Because we can look back and have hope. Because surely if God said to them, believe what I have to say, because... I have made a promise to you. Surely we who have got to see those promises fulfilled in Scripture have even more reason to have hope. So let's read the text this morning as a people who want to see the truth and the promises of God so that we might have hope. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read. We're going to read the last two verses of chapter 5 and the first 13 of chapter 6. You can read on the screen or in your own Bibles. Starting in verse 22. Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. But the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groanings of the people of Israel whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, we come before you. The God who delivered the Israelites out of the hand of the most powerful empire in the world. The God who punished the Egyptians with tremendous plagues, Lord. The God who proved His might above the most powerful things known to man. You are the God who made a promise You are the God who kept it. Lord, we know it is before You that we come this morning. It is Your truth, Your words that You inspired Moses to write in this very text. So Lord, open our ears. Open our eyes. Help us to see this truth, for we know that this truth was written for us so that we might understand so that we might know and that we might believe. Lord, we are much like Moses. We are much like the Israelites and too often we're a lot like Pharaoh. Lord, we deny Your existence. We deny Your power. We deny Your promises. Lord, convict us. Show us, Lord, our shortcomings. Show us our sin, and Lord, display Your might and wonder to us through Your text this morning. And help us to see so that we might believe. Lord, would You speak through Your Word this morning? That is what we pray. Lord, may you be glorified through the preaching of your word. We pray all this in the name of Christ who has redeemed us. Amen. 
As I was reading this text, I was reminded of the disciples. I I keep seeing this parallel. I hope you're seeing it as well between Moses and his commission and the disciples and their commission. If If you read the Gospels and you read these in light of Exodus and you read Exodus in light of the Gospels, you'll start to see many of these connections. And one of the ones that's very clear as we read through the end of chapter 5 and into chapter 6 here is that God didn't come to rescue a people who were ready to be rescued, did He? God came to a people who, despite all the promises He's made, keep faltering, keep doubting. And you see, what I love about Scripture is these little connections because God shows us that He meets us where we are. I'm so thankful for that because I know that I need to be rescued out of my sin, out of my darkness. I don't, I don't need God to say, okay, let me come alongside you and work with you. No, I need God to give me resurrecting power, resurrecting grace so that I can have life and life abundant, the only life that He can give. But even as we read this text, we see God meets us in our doubt, just like He met the Israelites. I want to just do this by quickly turning to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, which we've already looked at once, but something that maybe you've not seen before as you've read through the Great Commission, but it sets up all that Jesus says, a very interesting point. So in verse 16 of Matthew 28, it says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. So I just think about this. When they saw Him, they worshipped Him. And I think back to the week last week and the week prior when Moses goes before the people of Israel and they believe and they worship the Lord. But then, what do the disciples do after they worship Him? But some doubted. How remarkable is this, that this is in the Great Commission, the end of Matthew's Gospel, where the disciples are being commissioned to go forth and build Christ's church as Christ descends into heaven on high. And what does Jesus say about the disciples? He doesn't say, and now they've got it all together, they're completely on board, in light of what Jesus is going to say, they're going to go. He says, no, and some doubted. But then what does Jesus say? He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, God meets us in our doubt. He does it for the Israelites here, but here's the thing. He meets us in his doubt, but he doesn't leave us there, does he? He doesn't say to the Israelites in Exodus, he doesn't say to the disciples, look how terrible you are. He doesn't rebuke them for not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. He doesn't condemn them for their doubt. Instead, God says, look at me. It's what we're going to see in Exodus 6. God says, look at me. Look at my promises. Remember what I've said. And what does Jesus say? Jesus, again, standing on this side of the cross, says to the disciples, I have been given all authority over heaven and earth. 
And I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age, because He's the fulfillment of all of God's promises here. Jesus fulfills them all, and He says, I am with you, so therefore, I know you doubt, but don't think upon your doubts. Look at Me. God says the same thing in Exodus 6. As they are in the midst of despair, God says, look at me. The first point I want us to look at is to step back and let's look at this despair that they have. Because I think this is something that I need a reminder of, and I know you all need that reminder too, because you're human just like me. And here's the thing, the first point I want us to see is that the fastest way to despair is impatience. The fastest way to despair is impatience. Now think about the irony in that statement. But look at verse 22 and 23. Last week we saw that Moses and Aaron, they go before Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. I'm going to I'm going to keep their quota the same and make them do even more work. And the people are oppressed. The foremen are so oppressed and down and, and terrified that they go before Pharaoh. And as we look, they said, Pharaoh, we are your servants. Completely forgetting about the identity they have as God's chosen people, God's servants. They go, they complain to Pharaoh. And what happens in the text in verse 22 is this is when the, the foremen are coming out of Pharaoh's palace and then they condemn Moses and Moses is like what am I supposed to do so Moses turns to the Lord and listen to what Moses says Moses says oh Lord why have you done evil to this people think about the gall But this is how much in despair Moses is in. And I know we get to the same point. We see evil, we see tragedy around us, and we say, God, why would you do this? Moses says, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people and you have not delivered your people at all. Moses, he says, Lord, you're on the same level as Pharaoh. Moses accuses God of evil. He repeats the words of the Israelite people, but he actually makes a much harsher accusation. He accuses God of doing evil. And then he says, not only have you done evil, he says, but you haven't kept your promises one bit. Moses sounds a lot like us when things don't go our way. Moses sounds a lot like us when we say, but Lord, this is supposed to happen. You said this was going to happen. Why hasn't it happened yet? And what do we sound like? We sound like people who are impatient. Even though we are suffering such hardships, who are we to question God and His providential timing? Who are we to question God as to when He will keep 
His promises. We find ourselves just like Moses. But for us to question God in this sense is to accuse Him of evil just like Moses did. Because God is not the one who's doing the, doing the act, is He? Pharaoh is the one who is oppressing, oppressing them. It is Pharaoh's actions for which Pharaoh is going to pay the consequences for. It is Pharaoh who is hardening his own heart even as God commands him to do one thing and God allows that to happen. So why is this all happening? When we come before this question, we say, Lord, why, why is this happening to me? Why am I hurting like this? I like what Douglas Stewart says to sum this up. He says, God's timing only sometimes coincides with our expectations. And His idea of the hardships we need to go through only sometimes coincides with our idea of how much we can take. In other words, Why do we keep thinking that God must work on our timetable? How do we know that God isn't at work to build and shape us for something much, much more important ahead through the trials we're currently undergoing? Who are we to determine what we can withstand if it's the Creator who's guiding us through the trial we're currently in? The fastest way to despair is impatience because we despair not because of some flaw in God's character or His promises, but we despair because it's not our way, not our desire that we want and what we get. So we see Moses in despair. And how does God respond? I love what happens here. God responds with this whole text of eight verses recounting His covenant promises. Telling Moses, look at who I am. So I am. So the fastest way to despair is impatience, but the way to be free from despair is to look to God. It is to look to God and to consider what has He said is going to happen. What has He done to prove His character? So we have in verses 1, starting in chapter 6, the Lord says to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. See, even in this first text, what he says is, say, you think that Pharaoh's hand is so strong. You think that you cannot withstand it. You think that it's stronger than even mine. And we have the tendency to think that our trials, whatever they may be, are too big for God. But what God is essentially saying here, and what we read, we've already seen this, uh, in God's promises back in Exodus 3, God told 
Moses, he says, I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. So God is recounting his promises that he's already made, but when he says to Moses in verse 1 that it is for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land, what he says is what you don't know about Moses, you think, or about Pharaoh, you think Pharaoh is so strong, so powerful, Pharaoh doesn't, isn't going to realize either himself. He says, I'm going to let this get to the point where Pharaoh thinks it's by his hand that he is pushing you, pushing Israel out of Egypt. And he's going to think it's by his might and his power, but it's my hand behind it all. God opens with a statement that's essentially saying what the world means for evil, I mean for good, and I will accomplish my good just like I promised it. God then goes on to Moses and he says, I am the Lord. And that's the the covenant name that we talked about from chapter 3, Yahweh, that I am the covenant God. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, El Shaddai. But by my name, the Lord, I I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Now, as we read through this whole section of verses 1 through 8, what do we keep hearing again and again and again? God, in His response to Moses and the Israelites and their unbelief, their accusations towards God, God doesn't say, you, you, you. He doesn't accuse them of their failure. He continually says, I I will, I have, I am the Lord. I am the covenant-keeping God. I have made a promise to you. I made not only a promise to you, Moses, and he uses the exact language he used at Moses' commission in Exodus 3, but then he goes on, he says, tell the people of Israel this, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. He says, not only am I going to rescue you, I will take you to be my people. God says, you're you're missing out on the meat of the promise here. It's not just that I'm going to rescue you from your present circumstances. He says, I'm going to make you a people set apart for my own, for me. He says, I'm going to make you my people. I will rescue you. I will redeem you. And that that word redeem is not just this, I'm going to save, I'm going to rescue. It's I'm going to purchase you. I'm going to take and pay the cost for you so that you will be 
my own. The same language that's used as Christ who is the Redeemer. God says, look, there's something much, much bigger than just rescue from this oppression. But you must also see that this oppression is going to be my tool to prove who I am. So the way to be free from despair, God does not say, now go fix yourself. Now go do this. You do this. You need to, you need to go and take care of this. You've got to do this. God says, no, look to me. Look to what I promised and look and listen to the glory that I am promising beyond the present circumstances. God says all of this. And I have to imagine Moses, who was discouraged, he's encouraged by this. He says, okay, you've reminded me of all these promises. And not only you threw that in, we're going to be your people. You're going to redeem us from Egypt, and we're going to go to this promised land. We're going to be in a land not our own. We're going to be with you. The Lord, the Creator of all things, He is going to live with us. He is redeeming us for Himself. So Moses, he's pumped up, right? He knows this truth. He's been reminded of it. He knows this is just a temporary setback, but God is going to accomplish His purposes. But then he goes to the people of Israel in verse 9, and what happens? They did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Moses gets the truth He shares it with the people who are hurting. And they don't listen. They don't listen. What we see, again, but let's look at this from a different angle, impatient despair looks to the present instead of the promise. They were told why they despair. They don't listen specifically because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. A broken spirit, a long period of hardship will leave one struggling to find hope in any situation, much less one as difficult as the one the Israelites were in. You've probably experienced a long period where things just keep seeming to go wrong. Things are falling apart left and right. You've been hurt by someone. You come face to face with the consequences of bad decisions that you've made. You feel the weight of it all. And you feel broken. The Israelites, they were a broken And this isn't through any fault of their own right now, right? They're broken because of the oppression they've endured, but their fault is in that they continue to look at the wrong direction. See, they knew the immensity of this situation. They knew the, the, the brokenness of their captivity, and they knew the promises that God had made, but they could not believe and rescue because they could not see past their suffering. 
They couldn't see it. And they refused to look past it. They were broken spirit. They were under harsh slavery. I mean, this is centuries of slavery. They've been in Egypt for 400 years. We don't know how long exactly they had been enslaved, but just for some perspective, if we think about the slave trade, well, you got the, the African, the transatlantic slave trade. It lasted for over 300 years. So the Israelites are enduring something almost as long, if not as long, as what our African-American brothers and sisters have endured for centuries. And you think about the effects of such an atrocity where one people group looks down on a certain ethnicity, a certain group of people. How much brokenness. How despairing. But what do the Israelites do? They're under this harsh slavery and they don't respond in faith. They just can only see their situation. So can you imagine how how broken they must have been. How hopeless they must have felt. If the most powerful country in the world and the most powerful leader in the world wants to keep you and your family enslaved, what are you going to do about it? They felt as if they could do nothing. And the one gleam of hope that they had When Moses said, God is going to let you go, and they go before Pharaoh, and he makes things even worse for them, their only response that they knew was to be broken and to give up and to just continue to follow. Because here's what's at the root of the Israelites' problem. They still did not have a proper view of who God was, of who God is, and the promises that He made. See, in their mind, Pharaoh, who is this semi-divine being before them and the Egyptian deities who ruled the country that they had been in for centuries, they said there's no way we can overcome them. And immediately, when they're given hope and it's shot down, they just say, no, we can't do it. So the Israelites, they're broken. And in their brokenness, they did not listen. They're not listening to the hope that God has given them. So, as we look at this text, it doesn't seem very hopeful, does it? But you've got to think about this. This is Moses writing this story. Moses' response, even still, the Lord then responds after they do not believe because and they don't listen to Moses, they're just ignoring him. And Moses comes before God, and God says to him, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. God essentially says to Moses, Alright, you tried to like be polite and you know politically correct the last time you said this. Now, you're going to go to him and just say, Let him go. Nothing about this festival for three days in the wilderness. You just tell him, Let him go. But Moses, how does Moses respond? Moses has bought the contagion of this despair from the Israelites. He says, the people of Israel, they've not listened to me. He says, how then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am a man of uncircumcised lips. We say, what uncircumcised lips? What what does he mean there? He's talking about he's not 
not a part of the covenant. He's unclean. He's something that's less than proper. So Moses is saying, I don't even have the right words to say, and the people, your people, whom you're supposed to redeem, they won't even listen to me. Moses says, what am I going to do? So we've got this complete breakdown of the people of God. We've got a people in despair who are giving up any kind of hope. They won't even listen to their leader. And then you've got a leader who just says, no one's listening to me. Why should I even keep talking? So what does the Lord say? The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Now, what happens after this? If you look in the text, what we'll cover next week is the genealogy of Moses and Aaron. We'll walk through that next week. But immediately in chapter 7 is the first plague. So we kind of have to look at this big picture of what's going on. We think, why, why has God allowed the, peop- the people of Israel to be so broken? Why has He let it get to this point? He said He was going to redeem them. He said He was going to save them. But now they've been punished even harder and they don't have any hope whatsoever and what I think becomes so remarkably clear in this text is that the Israelites are not going to be saved because they've had they have enough faith the Israelites are not going to be saved because there's something valuable in them other than God's grace and love shine upon them they don't have enough faith they're sitting here broken refusing to listen to the word God has given them and the next thing that happens is God takes the plagues to the very powers that they keep submitting themselves to it's why later in Exodus 20 when God opens up his giving of the law the ten commandments you know how he opens up that statement He says that it is He is the Lord your God who rescued you out of Egypt. Therefore, the law is given in grace. The law is given to a people who've already been redeemed. The people who can look back to the redemption. When they were looking forward, they had no hope. God provides redemption and rescue for them. And then God says after that, when they can look back to where God has rescued them, He says, Now do these things because of what I've done for you. God opens this statement with the law reminding them that He rescued them, but right now they're in the midst of all this. They don't realize, they don't have a hope that He's going to rescue them. What I see in this text is this very clear doctrinal truth that we must remember salvation is by grace through faith this is the solution to the problem the problem of broken despairing hearts 
is not any type of, you have to go do this now. It's not, oh, get your act together. It's not, oh, let me present myself before God. No, the solution to broken, sinful hearts is to say, look at what God has done. And look at what God has promised to do. That's why God allows this brokenness to happen to them because He wants them to remove from their minds and hearts any idea that they contributed to their rescue. He allows them to fall into brokenness and despair. He allows Pharaoh to get it in his mind that he is the one who's in control of the situation. And it is only by God's judgment against the powers of this world that God proves to them, look who is the mighty one. Now I'm going to redeem you. Salvation is by grace through faith. Does this not make sense then? Paul's letter in the the letters of the Ephesians, what he says in chapter 2, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. That statement is just as true for the Israelites who are about to be rescued out of slavery as it is for us because they weren't just being redeemed from Egypt. God was putting in place the nation through whom the Savior would come who would redeem them from their sin and their true separation, their true reason for despair. But then in verse 10, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God was creating a people to walk before Him. To walk in light of His truth. To walk according to His purposes. Because what was He going to accomplish through the nation of Israel? He made a covenant promise to Abraham. The covenant that He keeps repeating here. He told Abraham that through Him all the nations of the world would be blessed. You see, but the Israelites, they keep only thinking about their current situation. They're not remembering all the covenant promises that He said, not only am I going to redeem you, and He told Abraham, your descendants are going to be in a a nation not their own, under oppression for 400 years, and I will draw them out. But then in the midst of that same covenant, He says, you, your nation, your descendants, they will be a blessing to all the nations. Now how is that going to come come about? It's going to come about through Jesus Christ. So, What we see in Exodus is that God allows His people to come to the end of themselves so that they might trust in Him and in Him alone and then to walk forward in faith because God is going to accomplish His purposes through the people whom He expresses His love and grace. God's going to rescue the Israelites, after they absolutely give up any hope of saving themselves. And He does this so that they will know the basis of their salvation is grace. Wonderful grace. We think about this truth. We ask, well, why did God allow the Israelites to suffer? In one part, it was to allow them to suffer so that they might see their need. 
He allows them to suffer so that they would have no hope other than Him. That truth is just as applicable to us as well. Why does God allow us to suffer? He allows us to suffer sometimes. It's not because of our actions. It may be because of the actions of others, but He allows us to endure trials so that we might only trust in Him. But we also have to ask ourselves, where are we guilty in the midst of this? So I ask this question, why do we tend to be people who prefer worldly means for security, pleasure, and happiness? So why do we tend to be a people who prefer worldly means for security, pleasure, and happiness? The reason we prefer those worldly means is because we like to see the end and the means to get there in the same picture, don't we? I'm guilty of that. I want to have a plan. I want to know where I'm going, and I want to be able to know every step along the way of what it's going to look like. But see, we go after these worldly means of security, even though their eternal significance is nothing great. But we go to them because we can see the end, but we think that the end will satisfy and we know that we can we know the means by which to get them so that we grab we grab after them and we go after them but then when we finally do if we do make it to the end of whatever path that is that we go down we find ourselves in despair once again because that path doesn't go into eternity that path falls terribly short we find ourselves trusting, even if it's in fear, in the powers of this world, instead of the Redeemer Himself. We find ourselves trusting in the things of this world because we know how they work. And even if they keep us oppressed and in bondage, at least we know how they work. And we trust them instead of trusting God. God, in His grace, allows us suffering so that that might be taken away. So that when He proves who He is through His might and through His deliverance over the next few chapters, it will be absolutely abundantly clear that He is the Creator. He is God who rules and reigns over all, and they, as His people, are recipients of a gift of grace that they did not deserve. we look at our own situation, if we find ourselves in despair, God doesn't say, be condemned, be condemned, look at all this that you're doing wrong. He says, look to me, put your hope in me and stop trusting in all these other things. Trusting God will mean taking steps forward even if we don't know the immediate outcome because here's the thing, God who is eternal and has given us His promises which point us to eternity with Him, has made clear the eternal end, even if we don't know the temporal means. He's made clear the eternal end, which is life with Him, life with our Creator and God, 
freedom from sin, rescue from just judgment. But are we going to trust the temporal means, the temporal ends? Or are we going to trust that God who knows what lies in eternity, that God who is just and righteous, who stands in condemnation over all sin, including our own? Are we going to trust Him and His Word, or are we going to continue to trust the things of this world? One commentator says this about the Israelites who are despairing in the midst of this despite having the promises laid out before them. He says this, Could they but see the future, they would realize that while they now struggle to build with straw and mud in Egypt, they will later work with gold, silver, and bronze to construct a divine dwelling at Mount Sinai. Remember, we have the privilege of being able to look back at the whole situation. And we can say, man, what's wrong with those Israelites? Don't they know what is coming for them? But don't we do the same thing? You see, they, they're so in despair that they're, they're saying, it'll be better if we just stay here and struggle as we build storehouses, Brick buildings for Pharaoh and this nation which has oppressed us. They're saying, look, let's just keep doing this. And they're failing to realize what's going to happen when we get to the instructions later on in Exodus. That same people end up building a sanctuary out of gold, silver, and bronze so that they might worship God who now dwells with them. You think about the absurdity of this, but look how, how much despair they're in. They won't even listen. Here we stand condemned. If we stopped long enough from our building of kingdoms and worldly temples in this world and then look to God's purposes where we are the temple, where His church is the temple being built up for His purposes, then we might just start living in hope instead of despair. I want to read from you from 2 Corinthians 6. Because we see that the Israelites were rescued from building temples for Pharaoh to build the temple of God where he would dwell with them. We know that the tabernacle is just a picture, as the author of Hebrews says, of that which was to come. And then we know from John that the Word of God was with God. And the Word of God came and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. Now listen to what Paul says in Corinthians. He's speaking to a church that is been looking after temporal means, which has been going after idols, going after idol worship for sacrifices that has been, has been struggling with sexual immorality within. And Paul says, What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, and he's quoting from Leviticus and quoting from Exodus, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
Paul says, we are the temple of the living God. God has provided rescue for us through His Son who died for us, took on our sin, took on our punishment, and He offers rescue for all of us. And as we read in Ephesians, it is by grace we are saved through faith. That means that it is a gift. When we see what God has done, we see and recognize the gift and we say, Lord, I know what You've done for me. I'm going to stop going after these temporal things. I'm going to stop going after these things because I know what You provide for me is something so much greater. Paul says, look, he's building up his church. We are the temple, his church, where he dwells with us. The Holy Spirit who lives within all who believe and trust in Christ. God says, look, there's something so much greater than what this world has to offer. There's rescue from sin. There is life. But you must trust in me. God doesn't say, go get it all right immediately. He says, go. He tells Moses, even after Moses questions him, He says, I'm a man of uncircumcised lips. God just repeats to Moses. He gives him a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh. He's to bring the people out of Israel, out of the land of Egypt. I think about the disciples who were doubting. Even as they stood there with the risen, resurrected Savior, they still doubted. But what was Christ's response to them? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Go in light of the fact that I rule over all things. Go, therefore, in in light of the fact that I have purchased you with an immense cost. He says, go in light of the fact that you have been redeemed. We can go forward in obedience, not through our own power, but because we recognize what God Himself has done for us already. If we find ourselves in despair, we must ask ourselves, am I looking to God Or am I looking to all the things of this world and assuming that God's not bigger than me? See, this whole text is setting up the plagues, which we'll look at here in a couple weeks. It's setting up the plagues because the plagues are the representation of the powers of the world, the powers of this nation of Egypt that the Israelites were so afraid of. But God has gone one by one, punish the Egyptians and prove his might. He's going to demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is the God of the universe. But see, we've been given that same proof. God has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt 
that he keeps his promises because he has kept every one of his promises and they've been fulfilled in his son who fulfills that covenant promise that he made to Abraham that God repeats here to the Israelites in Egypt that God will repeat to them as he sets and establishes the law that God will repeat even as he raises up a king and he says to David one of your sons shall reign on this throne forever we know that God has kept his promises. They're fulfilled in Christ. And in Christ we have redemption from our sins. We have reconciliation with our Creator. We have all the reason in the world to have hope. But only if we trust in Him. And trusting in Him, the other side of that coin is repenting of all the ways that we've trusted in ourselves and in the world instead. How will we have hope? By looking to Christ. I want to close with this quote from J.C. Ryle. We read it in our Sunday school class this morning. Christ's love towards us and not our love towards Christ is the true ground of expectation and true foundation of hope. To look inward to our love towards Christ is painfully unsatisfying. To look outward to Christ's love towards us is peace. This same statement was true of the Israelites. For them to look towards their love for God in this situation, well, what would that have given them? Not much, right? But it, God said, look at me, keep your eyes fixed on me, see what I have done, what I'm about to do, and in that find hope. If you're here today and you've been looking every other place except for God for hope and peace and you realize that you need to trust in God, I want to invite you to do that today. Know the freedom and the hope that comes in knowing your Creator and your Savior. Know the freedom that comes from being able to say to the world, I don't care how powerful you seem to be. I don't care what you have to offer me. In light of God, it's all worthless. Because God is my treasure and my hope. If you're a believer, I pray that you would consider the hope that's in this passage and you would consider, look, God doesn't say that I have to have everything together to go and be faithful. He says, look, continue to look at me, find strength in what I have done, what I've promised to do, and then act in faith. I know it's easy to lose hope it's easy to be in despair because i've been guilty of it too this sermon has been a, a smack in the face of all the things in which and exposing all the th- ways in which i trust in myself and the things of this world instead of the promises of god and church if we have any desire to be built up as his church god's dwelling place we've got to stop trusting in the things of this world and we've got to trust in Him and in Him alone. So I want to ask you to pray with me as we close today. Let's consider how we might trust in Christ and Christ alone. How we might die to the temptations to follow the world, die to the fears that we have of the world, and how we might be given new life by trusting in Christ and Christ alone. Will you pray with me?